It, it was a fun one to do, to be honest. We uh, were able to get a ton of people with really great expertise to actually give their input and hopefully come up with something good that people can learn from. Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome. Welcome to ED ECMO. This is ED ECMO. Our ED ECMO. It is October 2022. This is Zach Shiner. And we are on episode number 80. When you look back at some of those original ones we did, man, we were green. But it does show the progression of how we've now become very sophisticated in this. And that actually leads in quite well to this month's discussion. As I said last month, we were going to talk about some pearls that that have come up. And last month, I was out in Boston with Elso. And I would say that one of the big things that came up there is how do we standardize this idea of eCPR? How do we decide what is needed to become an eCPR physician? These are massive topics. These are controversial topics. These are topics where you have to get people together and you have to make some tough things. And, and this is what we should all be thinking about. How do we do this best? And so, you know, this month, this leads into it perfectly because I've got Florian Schmitzberger from the University of Michigan who published a paper that I think you should all read. Now, I'm going to interview Florian, and he's got a fascinating past where he, you know, he wanted to be an ER doc. He did a lot of his training in Europe and then came over to Stanford and is now at Michigan in a resuscitation fellowship. But one of the major things that he did was he took a bunch of experts and he said, how do we do this? best. Now I'm going to interview Florian, but after I do, there's about seven minutes where I'm going to go through the entire thing that Florian has come up with. Getting these 14 experts all together and having them pound out the details of how do you do eCPR, the minutia. And so with that, let's get into it. It is. Yeah. I mean, ultimately it all, it all kind of went down the path of me being interested in uh, critically ill patients and kind of my my whole career trajectory has been moving me closer and closer to that and uh, kind of ultimately led me to uh, University of Michigan where we uh, we do a, a whole bunch of this interesting work and uh, I was lucky enough to uh, kind of collaborate with like-minded people for this study who are also uh, dealing with very basic patients and uh, as a resuscitation science fellow this kind of was a uh, an excellent project for me to take on. Absolutely. This paper is, is really good. So, so, Florian, tell us, what did you do? The, the study, essentially, uh, it was done by uh, the, a core team of uh, people here at UFM, Nate Haspel, Peterson, myself, and uh, with great support from uh, national international experts. Essentially, what we did is we did a, a modified Delphi study, um, basically trying to find as close to evidence as we currently can without doing a randomized control study on how to best implement eCPR in uh, a setting, in any setting really. And kind of trying to get both a national and international expertise on this. So we, what we did is we found, we did snowball sampling, basically trying to get as many experts in the field to collaborate on the study. Ended up with 14 content uh, matter experts from four continents, five specialties. We had anesthesiology, emergency medicine, cardiothoracic surgery, cardiology, critical care medicine, as many as possible to get a, as broad a view as, as we could. 
The idea is basically trying to give a little bit more of a structure to how, what, what experts think. Everybody, we all know experts, they all have strong opinions. How do you combine that into like a uh, an actual like good framework? And we were lucky enough to have a few people who are uh, well-versed in this methodology and basically taking what institutions do and combining that into like a giant list of like the steps to cannulation in, as well as inclusion and exclusion criteria for eCPR. And we, we ended up having seven protocols that had a that we basically had consensus on combining them into like one enormous list of items. So basically how to place people on pump and every single step before and after. And it has ended up being this like enormous protocol with way too many steps and different like branching points, you know, like for inclusion and exclusion, like protocol one had age greater than 65, age, age less than 65. Protocol two had age less than 70 protocol three did not mention any age and that's kind of where the experts then came in to kind of narrow down that list and use that as a starting guide to uh, come up with a good consensus kind of document so we ended up having these seven institutional protocols and kind of narrowed them down through multiple steps so we had an expert so everyone basically all the experts kind of were able to use a likert scale to rate each item from one to five kind of important to uh, not important to very important, essentially. And then uh, we, we defined consensus on those. So like, for example, some we have a protocol that says inclusion criteria, the need, patient needs to be less than 75 years of age. Our first expert basically said, yeah, that's, a, that's, that's good. Let's make that a, a very, very important aspect. But the other expert doesn't agree, less, less consensus from, uh, from the experts. Kind of went through multiple of these steps. We had a virtual consensus meeting because not everything can be included in a, in a Likert scale. So we actually had a great discussion over a virtual meeting to kind of actually discuss these points, which for me personally was the most fascinating part of this whole project. And then ultimately came up with a second consensus survey and then ended up with these 101 items, our gold standard, so to speak, of how to cannulate and put someone on, on, on ECMO for eCPR. Yeah, so so many good things in this study. Uh, the Delphi approach, where you've got these iterations, these coming back, getting the initial survey. I mean, I think this was all good. I it was a part of the process, so I thought it was very well done. Obviously, you're going to have limitations when you do this sort of thing. You're not going to have this is exactly what needs to happen, but at least you get to know with at a very broad sampling of people that you took, what are people doing out there? And so yeah. when you when you come to this, give us some take homes. What are some things that that I can draw from these 14 people as far as how they're doing ECMO? So I think the 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 key takeaway points, the easiest thing for centers to kind of implement is take these and obviously adapt them to your local environment and see what is possible, the, the people you have available, the patient population, and kind of use them as like a a raw guideline for setting up your own eCPR program. That is kind of our ideal setup for this. Like this is not the this is not the truth. This is what our collection of 14 experts have come up with. It is not a randomized controlled trial. Unfortunately, I wish we had the perfect truth and knew exactly what we could use, but this is as good as we got to at this point. Easiest thing to take away probably inclusion exclusion criteria. Compare them with other studies that have been done. 
we had a great discussion on this. It's probably half our discussion focused on the inclusion exclusion criteria. There's a lot to be considered here. I also anticipate that this will change over time as we hopefully get more aggressive and more eCPR capable centers pop up. Age will probably change over time with increased life expectancy and better care. And then really figuring out as we have more evidence, who should actually go on pump and who who should not. So I think that's probably the biggest takeaway if anyone's reading the study, looking at our inclusion exclusion criteria and kind of comparing them to like the ELSA study, other algorithms, institutional algorithms, and uh, discussing it at, at Reanimate and other places. Yeah, I agree. I, I think the inclusion criteria is a good one to look at. I actually would would recommend that everyone that listens to this, if you're in an eCPR program, take what you do and then take Florian's study and match them up. I mean, look at what you do. And if you see something that's different, then either you should have a pretty good reason why you're doing it differently, which may be fine. But but if you don't have a great reason why you're, you're deviating from this massive list that Florian created, then you should rethink it and should think maybe maybe our practice should change to something more consistent with that. You think that's a reasonable thing, Florian? I think that's that, that would be reasonable. Again, this is not the ground truth. This is our best estimate of what is reasonable. Maybe maybe you got it right. Maybe somebody else got it right. But this is as good as we can get at this point from uh, from this specific study. So we, we always appreciate feedback as well. Well, and I actually think that that has been the primary goal of this podcast is to be try and take people from all over the world, see what they're doing, see why they're doing it, and then come up with some sort of structured way to, to go forward with this. We need people doing different ways. Like we need the Parisians doing the cut down so that we can assess whether that's the right way. We need Minneapolis to go out in their ambulance cath lab and find people on the streets because say, maybe that's the right way. We need New Mexico to go out and, and uh, you know, hand crank the pump back to the, to the station and see if that's actually the most effective way or cost-effective way maybe. Uh, so we need variations, but we also need to have good reasons for the things that we do. And so there are some things we are not doing that are probably very important. And it's not because we thought about it, but it's because we just, we neglected to even think of it as an important piece of the, of the pie. That's a, great, that's a great point. I really, I really encourage people compare this to your own institutional protocols. If they deviate, think about why, why yours is different consider a study, consider finding out who's right. I think that would be a good a good way to utilize this and, and your own data. Okay, so let's, let's actually talk a little bit about the limitations because one of the limitations I see is that sometimes experts aren't as practical. Maybe they come from um, a more, an institution, you know, maybe more academic, maybe less like community hospital. Talk to, talk to me about that for me. What do you see as far as using experts as your gold standard it's it's tough you you have a, you bring up an excellent point here our hope is that experts are able to kind of look above and beyond the uh, academic ivory tower and kind of look towards more like what is what is an ideal practical application of this of this technique um, we did try to be as broad as possible um, I hope that we somewhat succeeded in this again we have fairly broad geographic coverage. But then again, bringing up limitations, there are certainly we certainly did not capture all the high volume 
ECBR centers in the world. There was many notable exceptions that uh, were not able to participate. And this is a limitation of our of our study and the uh, the rapid snowball sampling that we've that we've conducted to identify experts. This was actually one of the points we did bring up during some of the discussions between the author team. Like, are we being inclusive enough? Do we have a broad enough representation? We did try to bring in community sites because ECPR is no longer just limited to academic centers. We did try to have people with different approaches as far as, you know, bringing in, you know, for example, the pre-hospital providers from Paris, for example, trying to like not limit ourselves to like our very specific kind of mindset and then just uh, getting the same the same people talking about the same thing they've been doing for a long time now. So I, that, that while that's a limitation, you are at least at least aware of it and try to somewhat counteract that. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a great job. And I do think this list and I think the people that you got made this list very impressive and very uh, a good template for how to think about how you're running your program. Florian, anything else? No, I just really would like to thank everybody and their efforts, both the people involved in this study and everybody listening in and doing important work in, in ECPR. Um, I think we're all very much, very much understanding that this is a, an active field of research, and uh, I, I appreciate everybody's work and trying to further the field. All right, so that's the interview with Florian. As promised, we are going to talk through his findings. Remember, Delphi Approach, 14 of the best specialists in the world, trying to figure out what's the best way to do this. Now, I would, for the next seven minutes or so, I'm going to go through every single one of these steps. If you want to bug out and say, we're done with the podcast, totally fine. But what you could do here is you could imagine yourself in the room, ready to take care of this ECMO patient that's coming in. And as I roll through each one of these things that, that Florian asked so many different questions to make sure this is the way that we should do this, you should assess, is this the way that we do it? Do we do it differently? All right, you ready? All right, ECMO patient coming in. Prior to patient arrival, you're going to brief the team. You're going to understand the age, the known history. You're going to look at what the cardiac arrest synopsis is. What is the time that they're going to arrive? You're going to prepare the equipment cart, the procedure table. You're going to prepare gowns and caps and masks. You're going to prepare cannulation supplies and an ultrasound with a sterile probe cover. You're going to prepare the ECMO circuit. Make sure that it is primed and inspected. You're going to assign team roles, airway manager, code leader, ECPR cannulator number one, and maybe even cannulator number two. You're going to have nurses and techs that can read, one being the recording nurse. You're going to have a staff member trained in managing the ECMO circuit. Now, once the patient arrives, you're going to remove the clothing. You're going to position the patient supine, center of the room, with the ability to have 360-degree access to the patient. You're going to listen to the paramedic report. You're going to place a sterile gown or drape over the procedure table to make a sterile field. You're going to prep the patient with antiseptic, including both groins. You're going to open equipment in sequence of procedure. You're not going to stop the mechanical chest compression. You are going to check for pulses and rhythm checks unless you see signs of life. You're going to limit pauses in chest compressions to be as short as possible. All right, now you're going to start the cannulation procedure. You're going to use closed loop communication as we do in everything. You're going to maintain sterility through the procedure. You're not going to do any shocks, defibrillations once you've made the decision to cannulate. You're going to access vessels with ultrasound guidance. You're going to access the most anterior aspect of the vessel at a low angle, 
less than 45 degrees, you're gonna visualize that needle entering the vessel. And after placing wires, you're gonna confirm those wires with an ultrasound, an echocardiogram, maybe a TE if you have it. Fluoroscopy would be ideal. Do not count on pulsatility. You're not gonna be able to tell. They're in cardiac arrest. Now with the placement of the cannulas you're gonna use on the arterial side, you're gonna take that guide wire and advance it to the femoral artery access. You're gonna have your hand off the back of the wire handing it to your wire assistant. You're gonna make a nick over that, that guide wire. And then you're gonna use serial dilations. And you're gonna make sure that the wire is always being handled. Cannulators are gonna communicate, I have the wire, you have the wire. 15 French for average female or small male was decided in this study. 17 French for the average male. Now, you're gonna advance the arterial cannula over the guide wire just below that tapered hub, right? We're not gonna to wanna to push too deep. We're going to remove the operator and wire and backfill the arterial cannula to expel any air. We're then going to clamp that cannula. Venous sign is similar. We're going to advance the guide wire through the femoral venous access. We're going to have that, hand that wire off to our wire assistant. We're going to nick the skin along the venous guide wire. We're going to do serial dilation technique. Remember, we're not going to want to overdilate. In this study, it was agreed that 25 French would be the average for a male. We're going to remove the operator and wire backfill the venous vessel and do the exact same thing. We're going to clamp. We're now going to go on pump. We're going to bring that circuit to the bedside. We're going to cut the tubing to the manufacturer specifications. We're going to remove the caps on the arterial cannula, but we're going to leave it clamped. We're going to open up that arterial limb and make sure that it backflows. And we're going to connect that using underwater seal, using halfway the tubing connected halfway to the cannula, making sure that you have a constant flush so that you have no bubbles in the circuit. You're then gonna unclamp your arterial limb and leave the arterial cannula clamped. We're gonna remove the blue cap from the venous cannula and leave that clamped, and then do the same side. We're gonna do underwater seal, where we're gonna de-air it, making sure that we have no air in the circuit. And again, we're going to unclamp the venous limb and leave the venous cannula clamped. We're then gonna state, ready to go on pump, and await verbal confirmation that circuit team is ready. We're gonna ensure that the sweep gas is flowing. We're gonna increase our pump flow to neutral. We're gonna ensure arterial blood return is bright red once we start, and we're gonna direct the team to stop chest compressions. We're gonna take an arterial blood sample from the arterial catheter to adjust the sweep gas. Now, the post-cannulation phase, we are going to place an additional sterile central line in arterial lines for pressors and continued blood pressure measurement in arterial gas samples. We're going to confirm the venous cannula is above the diaphragm using a sub-xiphoid ultrasound. We're going to confirm the venous drainage is dark blood and the arterial, blood is, arterial return is bright red. We're going to secure cannula in place. We're going to apply a sterile dressing and we're going to obtain a right radial art line. This allows us to judge the map and pulse pressure, and then later on, we're gonna get that, that ABG. We're gonna titrate up our flow. We're gonna titrate our pressors in addition to the flow to achieve a map of greater than 65. We're gonna optimize our pH to a goal of greater than 7.2. We're gonna normalize electrolytes. Once we are in normal, silence, normal sinus, we can get an EKG, we can consult cardiology. And if we're in refractory VF, then we're gonna consider other things magnesium, amiodarone, and maybe cardioversion. This is after a 10 to 15 minute delay. If we're in NSVT or we're in rapid AFib, then we may continue our metabolic resuscitation and consider magnesium or amiodarone. We're gonna secure the airway, our ventilator settings, AC, 
VC, six milliliters, milliliters per kilogram. We're going to do a rate of 12 and a peep at eight. We're going to obtain a right radial arterial blood gas. We're going to titrate our FaO2 on the ventilator first to achieve normoxia. We're talking about PaO2 of 100 to 150. We're going to titrate our circuit ECMO sweep to eucapnia so that we can have PaCO2 of 40 to 45. So remember, ECMO sweep, not respiratory rate, to achieve our eucapnia. Head CT was agreed for all patients. CT chest out on pelvis with IV contrast if the patient is not directly going for cardiac catheterization. We're going to do temperature management. We're going to set to a goal temperature. More on that next month. We're going to be talking with Joe Tona about it. Uh, family meeting to summarize, ascertain goals, and discuss the plan. We're going to have a bedside echo to assess for cardiac function and particularly looking at whether that heart is ejecting. We're going to transfuse to a target of 8 to 10. We're going to check an SVO2 so that we can uh, off the venous cannula. And we're going to have a target SVO2 of 60 to 70. So that's a lot. But as you went through that, hopefully there were some things you realized, you know what, we do this differently. I think what we do is better. Or maybe you said, oh, we don't do that step. And maybe that step is super important. So I would encourage you, maybe it's, it's probably fairly difficult to kind of capture that all in one setting here. But if you can go back and take a look at this, I think it's advantageous to every program to go through this over and over and see where is it that they deviate? Where is it that you deviate? And maybe where are things that you can improve upon? And with that, episode 80 with Florian Schmitschberger. Thanks a lot.